Gracious Lord, truly, you do have the words of eternal life. And as you went where your disciples could not follow, to death and the grave, only to come back in resurrection to lead us now to where you are, we pray, Lord, that you would lead us, that you would pour out your Spirit to lead our hearts and our minds and eventually our bodies to be resurrected in you. That as you do your work of making all things new, you would do that work first and foremost in us, even this morning. And so, Lord, it's to you that we pray. Amen. Please go ahead and be seated. Version 2.0. It's a concept that has become sort of ubiquitous and well familiar to us, right? Whenever a technology or a product uh, is, is changed or adapted or perfected to the point where the old no longer stands, they roll out version 2.0, right? Actually, I found it fascinating this week as I was looking, uh, thinking about that idea, and as I was looking at the various you know, apps and programs and technologies that I myself have, I actually couldn't find anything that was in version 2.0. For instance, my Bible translation and study software is right now on version 11.0.7. Why .7? I don't understand that even, but... But, but it's a, to me, I, I take that as a sign that, of course, engineers and product developers are continually striving to perfect, right? They're continually try, striving to perfect their product, which never seems to happen, right? There's always the promise of, well, in the next version, right? It, we'll, we'll fix all these bugs in the next version. And yet it seems to never come. And this morning, as we come to our second reading from St. John's Revelation, we're shown what you might call creation 2.0. Creation 2.0. But unlike that contemporary drive to refine, in God's creating and recreating work, it does stop at that point. There's never a need to go beyond creation 2.0. There is no creation 2.0.7, right? Last week, we took a look at St. John's vision in chapter 7, where he got to tune into the, uh, what I call the, the live stream of what's happening even right now before the throne of God in heaven. Those who have been, where we saw the saints of God, those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb through baptism into Christ's death and resurrection get to glorify God and enjoy his presence forever, starting now. We saw how we can trust God with our loved ones, how we can trust God even with our own death, because for love's sake, God keeps the dead in Christ close under his own shelter. But you'll recall how I said this is a temporary arrangement until the final resurrection and the final judgment, the the sorting like Jesus talked about when, a, when a, he comes again and sorts like a shepherd sorting out sheep from goats. Here in chapter 21, fast forwards the vision a bit, skips over a bunch, 7 and 21. But here John is privileged to glimpse the, the fruit of that sorting after a manner of speaking. 
And so first, St. John reports to us in Revelation chapter 21 what he saw. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A new heaven and a new earth. Now, I honestly don't know what God sees wrong with his current heaven that he feels the need to create a new one. But I do know some things that are pretty wrong with the current setup on earth that could justify a recreation. The language of a new heaven and a new earth, seeing the old ones pass away, though, it it conveys, it's an image of totality. It conveys the completeness of this work, of this picture. God's not simply content to mend what is broken on the earth. Like a, a, a potter who you know, looks at her vase on the wheel and is discontent with it. And so she just sort of smashes it into a lump of clay to start over again. In a similar way, God looks at the brokenness. And he says, we're starting over. He discards the old completely. It's to convey the totality, the completeness of this recreating work of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I like the beach. I like everything about the beach. I, I love the intensity of the sun. I don't mind getting a little mild sunburn now and then. I love the undulating waves, the, the salt tang of the sea air. I love water sports. I love swimming in the ocean. I love watercraft. I love everything about it. So at first pass, upon reading this, I find myself wanting to say, what has God got against the sea? It's a great place, Right? I love the beach. Well, remember, this is apocalyptic literature still. So we can't be too strict and literal in our understanding and reading the details as they lay out. To understand this image, we have to go from the end of the book here in Revelation back to the very beginning. The very first words of the scripture say this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Right away, the very first words found in Scripture are a bold proclamation, a bold assertion. God is greater than chaos. God is greater than chaos. You see, in the ancient Near East, chaos was seen as the great enemy, the great enemy of existence. And the sea, with its stormy, tumultuous unpredictability, became the, the symbol of chaos. The creation account of Genesis was written as a proclamation into that culture that feared what it could not control, feared the chaos of life. A proclamation that humanity need not fear. Because there is one who is greater than the chaos. There is one, the one, who is able to subdue the chaos and bring forth from it order, an orderly creation. 
And even after chaos tries to reassert itself through the rebellion of humanity and the sin of Adam and Eve, God continues to demonstrate that he is still greater. Thus he commands the waters of the great flood. He leads his people across the Red Sea on dry ground and then harnesses the same sea as a weapon to fight for his people against Pharaoh and his army. He enters the world in the person of Jesus Christ whose disciples marvel, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him when he quiets a windstorm on the Galilean Sea? And thus this picture of the end of all things and the creation of the new. This is not a cartographer's description of the geographical features. There's no sea there. This is another bold theological statement. In this new creation, chaos isn't just subdued. It's not even present. It is not even there. It won't even exist. Similarly, we have to understand the other feature that John sees, the heavenly city coming down from heaven, New Jerusalem, at the center of this new heaven and earth. Now that's significant as well. Because, of course, in the Hebrew understanding of things, Jerusalem was the very center of the world. Not because Jerusalem is so great. I mean, it's, it's not really. I mean, it is cool. It's amazing, actually, to go there now because of its historical and religious significance. But that's exactly it. It's significant because of the significant things that have taken place there. And for St. John's purposes, he's making reference to the fact that this was the site that God chose for his earthly temple, the footstool of his heavenly throne, the geographical place which he chose for his manifest presence to abide upon the earth with his people. That's the root significance of this image. Just as in the old covenant, God's presence dwelt with his people in Jerusalem. So in this new heaven and new earth, God will again make his dwelling place with his people in their midst. There's a very important distinction. Because as John goes on with this vision, describing what he sees beyond what we read this morning, he makes this observation. And I saw no temple in the midst of the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The Jerusalem, New Jerusalem comes down, but it's not the temple, but God himself that makes it significant. Which accelerates our understanding of this image considerably. Spoiler alert, what John is seeing is an image of the church. The church in the midst of this new creation. Just as God set a garden in the midst of this creation in Eden, a place for Adam and Eve to dwell with him, so God has created already a place called church. And here in his new creation, God sets a beautiful city, his church, in the middle of the creation. Thus the language of a bride prepared and adorned for her bridegroom. The New Testament again and again refers to the church as the bride of Christ. God 
is a church planter. I'm not just saying that because I want to self-identify with him. God is a church planter. He literally planted the church, the new Jerusalem, in the midst of his new creation. Now that's really important for us to grasp because it has huge implications for how we walk with God here and now. Because first, it demonstrates to us that church is not optional. Church is not optional. It is God's endgame. It is God's purpose. It's become very popular in this day and age to believe that I can believe in God, I can even follow the God of the Bible on my own. Having my own personal spiritual experience with him, oftentimes up in the mountains or on the golf course or at the beach, and I can do that better than I can do it with people in church. But friends, what we see in Revelation is that there is something essential to walking with God that can only be experienced when we come together. Not only because we, your brothers and sisters in Christ, miss you when you're not here, miss the opportunity to love on you when you're not here, and miss your opportunity to love on us, but also... Because we need one another to experience the fullness of God's purpose. Now, I know this is particularly hard to believe and hard to accept, especially for those who have been abused or burned or hurt by the church. But it's true. And that leads to the second implication. Church is not, an op- not optional because church is the place where God resides with his people. There is no temple in this picture of the New Jerusalem because God himself dwells at the center of it all. And we begin to experience that reality here and now within the church. This is why I follow the ancient traditions of the church and and reverence the altar whenever I approach it. Because the altar is there as a symbol, as a physical reminder, a focal point, if you will, in time and space of the presence of God in the midst of his people. So if you were approaching God, how could you not bow, right? So just as the Old Testament priests treated the Holy of Holies with particular reverence, so we treat the table in the new covenant. Because the altar is the place where Christ comes and makes himself present in a new and unique way in the midst of his people at communion. This is why you hear me often invite us to come expectantly. Come expecting to meet God in our worship. Come expecting to hear God through his word. Come expecting to meet God, to be embraced by God, to be healed by God as we come to his table. Because when we gather on Sunday morning, we are not just here to you know, f- sing a few songs hear some polite words, and perform an ancient ritual. We are here to meet the very presence of the living God who has promised to be in our midst whenever two or more are gathered in his name. This is why when we ask the question, how is God calling us to reach our generation for Christ, we became convinced that the answer was plant his church. 
This is why we want to keep asking the question as a parish, how can we help disconnected people connect with the body of Christ? Because the church is God's idea. And it is his purpose. And it will be perfected and planted right in the midst of God's 2.0 creation. Next, we need to consider the first word John hears from God. Verse 3. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with humans. He will be with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Just in case there was any doubt about what John was seeing, God himself explains it to him. This is the ratification, the the consummation of the covenant God has made with his people through baptism. That phrase, I will be their God and they shall be my people, That's the refrain of God's covenant to Israel. It appears multiple times throughout the Old Testament. Here God is applying it to his new people in the midst of his new creation. We who are found in Christ, Jews and Gentiles. He is our God. We are his people. That is a reality that begins now. But it will be finalized here at the end of all things, when the old passes away and the new comes. Likewise, then, take to heart these promises that God makes to you. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, take those promises to heart. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And pain and death and mourning will be no more. That is the promise of God. Consider also the promises as he goes on in verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Then it goes on, but as for the cowardly and the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. But here is God's promise. These words can be trusted. And the affirmation of the promise that first appeared in Isaiah and then was taken up by our Lord during his earthly ministry, and is here perfectly offered to drink from the springs of the water of life. That too is yours, brothers and sisters, in Christ. And again, the refrain, adoption as a true son, with God as our God. Now that last bit, which you may have noticed, the 
uh, architects of our lectionary, the cycle of readings that we follow, conveniently cut out, but which I read to us in verse 8. That last bit, believe me, I take no pleasure in proclaiming it, but it is an essential part of the vision. And certainly a lot of cruelty and hard-heartedness has been justified throughout the ages of our history because of the church's maintenance of the doctrine of hell. But the truth is, you don't want to consider the alternative. You don't want creation 2.0 without that. A paradise where those who perpetrate evil are allowed to persist is frankly no paradise at all. Every attempt throughout history to create a utopian society, and there have been several, been quite a few in this country, actually, they all end in dissolution. Why? Because you can try to create a perfect system, but if it involves imperfect people, it's going to end up imperfect. Human self-will and rebellion and the pride and greed and self-assertion that come with it get in the way. And the project always fails. Thus, in what St. John sees, God's perfect new creation has to involve the expulsion of all of those forces that draw people away from the perfection of love. But hear this. God's justice can be trusted. God's justice can be trusted. What we understand from the totality of Scripture is that God does not reject or expel anyone lightly. There is no capriciousness here, no no fickleness. There is no, maybe I will, maybe I won't, haven't quite decided yet. Banishment from the city of God, being cut off from God's present, is reserved only for those who have settled upon giving themselves over to the fruit of self-will and rebellion, who have rejected Christ's offer to lead them into a new way of living. It's just the fruit of those who willfully choose not to embrace version 2.0. Just as the old world will pass away, so too will all those who cling to the old way of living in it. So hear this too, God's mercy can be trusted. Sadly, as I've alluded to, during some dark times in the church's history, hell has been used or wielded like this sort of tool, this sort of club to leverage fear and shame and guilt in order to keep people in compliance, either trying to literally scare the hell out of them and keep them from engaging in certain behaviors or to motivate them to certain behaviors, like paying for assurances of forgiveness. Again, leveraging people's fear, manipulating people. But friends, those are not reflections of the God of the Bible. Those are not reflections of God's justice as we see it throughout the scriptures. And neither is it reflective of God's mercy. St. Peter tells us the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. And the promise that he's referring to there is, in fact, Christ's promise to come again and to judge the living and the dead. He says, God is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. As we pray each and every Sunday, God is the same Lord whose very nature is always to have mercy. So all those who call on the name of the Lord, who throw themselves on the mercy of God, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, the scriptures proclaim. Nevertheless, there are those who have and will choose the path of clinging to self-will and the fruits of darkness that cannot be allowed to abide in this new creation. And they will sadly pass away and be destroyed with the old. But here, the merciful, powerful, hopeful promise of God in verse 5. Behold, I am making all things new. Notice the tense, I am making. This is not just a picture of the, the future glory, the completion of the project. It is, in fact, a work of God that has already begun. One day this vision will be a reality. This present age will pass away along with all the imperfections and injustices and perversions that chaos has woven into it. And this new creation will come forth. But the glorious reality of the good news of Jesus Christ is that even here and now, even here and now in the midst of the present, even in the midst of version 1.0, Small foretastes, small signs of this new creation, first fruits of this work of Christ making all things new are evident. We see it first and foremost in the way Jesus, by the power and presence of his Holy Spirit, can renew and reshape human hearts. The church in every age has heard the testimony of those who, like John Newton, have said, I was lost, but now I'm found, was blind. But now I see. There are those in every age who could give testimony to the ways Jesus broke in on their darkness and healed them from past wounds, from deep seated patterns of brokenness, from addiction and the tumultuous chaos in their own lives. But we see it also in the places where God's people, living according to this pattern of God's new creation, have brought and are bringing foretastes of new creation, justice, equity, peace, and wholeness to their communities. That's evident in places like Rwanda, where the church has been at the epicenter of the reconciliation and healing movement of God in that place that was ravaged, ravaged by genocide. I've seen it in places, in in colleagues' churches that meet in senior living facilities as a way to communicate to those in our society who are often communicated, we just kind of want you out of sight and out of the way, that they are central still to the plan of God. I see it evidenced even in our small attempts through faith family hospitality to show honor and dignity and care. It is today. It starts today and we're going to pray for it. Thank you for the reminder. But to show dignity and care to families who are struggling to come out of poverty. 
But friends, this is the glorious good news of the vision St. John shows us. God the Father, through the death and resurrection of His Son, by the power of His Holy Spirit, is making all things new. And one day, all this shall pass away. As John Newton penned in another line, the earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but he who loved me here below shall be forever mine. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God. And he will be my son. Amen. Lord, we praise you. And we humbly come to you and say, do your work in our midst, Lord. Do your new creation work in our midst. In our hearts, in our lives, in our community. Show us, open our eyes to see what you are doing so that we can participate with you in it. that we